Cars are often seen as a vital signpost for American masculinity and autonomy. I think only guns have more symbolic impact in this regard. As a beta male pinko cuck, I have never been enraptured by the romantic notions of taking to the open road in a stylish, high-performing machine. I've driven cars for pretty much all of my entire adult life. America is structured in a way that makes it extremely difficult to get to work if one doesn't have a vehicle. Still, I see my car as a money pit and a nuisance more often than not. I'd happily go without one if circumstances allowed. I've already mentioned the beta male pinko cuck stuff, so obviously I think America would be a better place if we had a robust public transit system. Mm, high speed rail. Still, I understand the mythic power behind the souped up muscle car and the endless highway. Thousands of writers have connected this imagery to independence, possibility, exploration, and the allure of the unknown. One of the more famous inversions of this myth is Christine, Stephen King's fable about a killer car. Like many King novels, it got a film adaptation that has largely eclipsed its source material in the public consciousness. We'll be talking about mostly the film in this episode, however we will be touching upon how it contrasts against the novel because I do think that there are important points that are thematic in nature and not just like pesky nerd shit and what the subtext about each of them says about us and how we view things. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is Rachel, and this was her pick. Yes, I mean, this is, what, the third John Carpenter movie you've done? Uh, yes, I've done Halloween and the Fog, yeah. so this is number three. This is number three. See, I picked... Christine because I really liked it and also I work in a very busy part of town in Halloween and I wanted to well October I wanted to do a horror movie um, before I had to deal with that and I picked Christine because I'm going to talk about this more in depth I think Christine is one of the few examples of a horror movie monster that is an unstoppable force that you know you can't quite kill it you can just stop her for a little while that's a lady. Because Christine's a lady. She's an angry lady. You compared her to Michael Myers. Um, yeah. I was thinking like the shark in Jaws, but the shark in Jaws is a boy. His name's Bruce. Yeah, I, I think that she's kind of like Michael Myers in that way. But, you know, besides the fact that she's in a movie by John Carpenter, but like she won't stop. She can't be reasoned with. Kind of like the Terminator in that way. Because of my background, my point of reference is Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, Wolverine also works. I mean, she's made out of metal. And I think that it's kind of rare to have that iconic movie monster and have it be a lady. And you know what? Yeah, you know, let ladies be, let women be bad. Like, all I can think of is, you know, the velociraptor from Jurassic Park. Love a girl. Easy, breezy, beautiful, clever girl. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, plot recap. Mm -hmm. uh, the opening scene takes place in September of 1957 at a Chrysler Corporation assembly plant in Detroit. The hood of a newly assembled red and white 1958 Plymouth Fury abruptly slams down and crushes the hand of a line worker inspecting its front end. She does not want people touching her under the hood without her consent. Yeah, another worker climbs in to sit behind the wheel, letting the ash from his cigar fall on the front seat. Uh-oh. At the end of the shift, the line supervisor notices that the car's radio is playing music, specifically uh, Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away, which is also the song that was playing when you entered the car, so it was a very long version. <laughs> he opens the door to shut it off, finding the worker's corpse. 
Yeah. Christine talks, but through her music choice on the radio, which Ryan uh, reminded me is how Bumblebee talks in Transformers, but Christine just sticks to classic rock and roll. Yeah, Bumblebee is a friend car, and he just picks whatever song (laughs) suits his purposes, whereas Christine is very, very hipster curating. Yeah, she, she really is. She's got a good playlist. 21 years later, this movie takes place largely in September of 1978. The awkward and unpopular teenager Arnold Cunningham, who lives in Rockbridge, California, with his only friend, a uh, jock named Dennis Gilder. Arnie's life begins to change when he buys the used, dilapidated Fury from the opening montage from George LeBay, whose late brother Roland had originally owned it. George tells Arnie several details about the Fury, including its name, Christine. Christine. Since his hostile and strict parents will not let him keep the vehicle at their house, Arnie begins repairing Christine at a DIY garage uh, owned by a Will Darnell. I kind of liked him. He kind of grew on me because Darnell, he's sort of like, you know, that classic, like, super gruff guy. And, like, he is, you know, nice to Arnie before he be- before Arnie becomes an asshole. He's like, you know, I'll, I'll let you, you know, park your car here and take parts. You just got to, you know, work for me a little bit. And it's, you know. He fell right out of central casting. Yeah, I mean, he did. I mean, also, it's a Stephen King story. What do you expect? <laughs> As Arnie spends more time with Christine, he discards his glasses, which he apparently doesn't need anymore. I kind of took it as that as he becomes connected to Christine, he starts to, like, get better. Like, you know how, like, Peter Parker doesn't need his glasses anymore. I mean, honestly, you know, you and I are, like, Velma, um, so if we both definitely stopped wearing our glasses, everyone would be very concerned. Well, I'm, I'm nearsighted, so I can still read okay. I just wouldn't be able to drive. I, yeah, I mean, I can see about maybe a foot in front of my face before I'm like, my glasses! Arnie starts dressing more like a 1950s greaser. I like and, that touch. Yeah, he develops an arrogant, paranoid personality. Unbeknownst to Arnie, his mother, Regina, tells Dennis that Roland actually committed suicide in Christine. Confronted by Dennis, George admits that Roland's daughter had choked to death inside the car, and that his wife also committed suicide in it. To get rid of her because of decency, the car came back. About two weeks. <laughs> George forced Roland to get rid of Christine after his wife's death, but I'm sorry, it was three weeks. No. (laughs) Yeah, like that makes a big difference. During a football game, as Dennis is playing in shortly after recovering from his injuries, Dennis becomes distracted upon noticing Arnie kissing his new girlfriend, Lee Cabot, who's like the hot new girl in town that everybody hit on Mm -hmm. and she rejected, including Dennis, but... You know, Arnie just has a way with her, I guess. The movie doesn't bother to explain how. More on that in a bit. You know what? Maybe it's the whole, you know, Roger and Jessica Rabbit thing. He makes me laugh. Arnie's not that funny. Yeah, I mean, and he's also a virgin, so I can't be like, he, he's got, you know, a good lover game. But I, to backtrack slightly, I took Dennis falling during the football game as to being like, Christine is a bit of a reality warper. So she made it happen. At this moment, Christine, which had been a total junker at this point, was now pristine sitting in the parking She's lot. She's red and shiny. This causes Dennis to sustain a career-ending injury. It's for the best. I don't want him to have CTE when he's an old man. 
Yeah, football's evil. Maybe Football we'll sucks. we'll have another episode where we could talk about that in further detail. But <laughs> later on, when Arnie and Lee are um, you know making out the drive through, one of the windshield wipers stops working. Of course, uh, he has to go out and fix it. You know, and Arnie gets out to uh, fix it up. Lee begins to choke on a hamburger as an oldies rock and roll song starts to play on the radio, and the lights just kick up intensely. The doors lock themselves, leaving Arnie unable to help her. But Lee uh, manages to drag herself out of the car and is rescued by a man who administers a hide and maneuver. I think, I thought that part was, like, really creepy. Because I find that, like, choking to death to be, I mean, all ways of dying are upsetting, but choking to death is particularly upsetting. Soon afterwards, school bully Buddy Repperton, angry with Arnie over being expelled after a confrontation in shop class where he pulled a knife on him. Yeah, we kind of joked that Buddy Repperton is like, he looks like he's 26 years old and has like a real testosterone coursing through his veins. I referred to him as a 30-year-old John Travolta that you got off Wish. Yeah, I, I gotta go with that too. Oh yes, this gentleman vandalizes Christine along with his gang, and uh, yeah, they're dead. Devastated and determined to repair Christine, Arnie encourages her to repair herself like Wolverine, which she does. See, I kind of interpreted the whole, like, let they all go and they trash Christine. It's almost like a rape and revenge movie, almost. Like, they all teamed up, they bash her in. It's not about the desire for the car, it's about power, sort of like how, you know, rape's about power. And the scene where Arnie encourages Christine to put herself back together again, I think that's the closest thing that you get to a sex scene in this movie. Like, it's about the erotic. Like, it is a romance, a fucked up one, between Arnie and Christine. I mean, my mind didn't go there with the rape stuff, but I can get on board with the rest of the erotic stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. cars as sex symbols are pretty, well, we'll be getting that too. Yeah, he, like, he says, show me, and then she starts to put herself back together again because... You know, Christine is clearly very powerful, but she wants to be loved and appreciated. And I will talk more about later, um, the movie Titan, which is a very good movie and has a lot more going on in it. But it's just famous for the scene where Alexia fucks the car and gets pregnant by the car. There is also a Saturday Night Live skit, which is a <laughs> fake commercial for the Mercury Mistress, the car that you can have sex with. <laughs> All I can think of is there's one episode of um, That's So Raven, where Raven's dad gets a new GPS that says, Anything for you, Victor. And, like, her mom hates it. <laughs> Anyways, Christine seeks out the bullies, killing them one by one, mm. including an incident where she triggers a gas station explosion that kills Don and Richie and also sets her on fire. Just a big cinematic orange gasoline explosion it's that you, awesome. you, you would not be able to get in real life without a whole lot of C4 and dynamite. But it's still really cool like she just she's just driving down the road by herself and she's on fire and she's just you know she's going nice and slow and making buddy repperton run as fast as his you know little jean clad legs can carry him and in the prior scene where she basically crushes what's his name mookie moochie moochie that's... moochie seems worse than mookie 
Moochie. Um, <laughs> well, he's Pan- the fat one. I know it's a Steve. It's a Stephen King novel, which means there has to be at least one line about the lady's boobs. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Stephen King, but sometimes he just writes about boobs, and he doesn't need to write about boobs. But anyway, the part where she squeezes herself between the little narrow alleyway to crush him to death is pretty cool. Like, he kind of, Mookie, Mookie kind of thinks he's safe because the car won't fit. But Christine is not a car. She's a monster. After the badly burned Christine returns to Darnell's garage, Darnell notices... There's no one driving the car. Yeah, so he approaches it with a shotgun, and he opens the driver's door to find it empty. Darnell sits in the driver's seat, and is then crushed to death against the steering wheel. Yeah, the song that plays is about somebody being a real skinny piece of macaroni, which is like, damn, that's kind of fucked up that you're saying about somebody being skinny as you crush somebody to death. The next morning, Christine is back in her slot and is in pristine condition with Darnell's body still in the driver's seat. She doesn't have any hands, Ryan. She can't haul out the corpses herself. State police detective Rudolph Junkins becomes suspicious of Arnie, having discovered paint from Christine at the scenes of the two gang members' deaths. And also, somebody said that they saw Christine, you know, trailing behind. Yeah, he has no direct evidence, however, to implicate Arnie, who has an alibi and denies all involvement. Jokins is either unaware or doubtful that Christine can drive herself. Following the choking incident and Christine's initial vandalization, however, Lee is suspicious of Christine and breaks up with Arnie. Dennis and Lee, who have both become aware in some level of uh, Christine's supernatural and evil nature, conclude that the only way to save Arnie from the car's influence is to destroy it. They set up a trap for Christine at Darnell's garage, with Dennis waiting in the controls of a bulldozer while Lee stands ready to close the garage door and cut off Christine's retreat once it enters. Unfortunately, having hidden under a pile of debris in the garage the entire time, Christine strikes when Lee assumes her position at the door controls. Mm -hmm. Attempting to kill Lee, Christine crashes through Darnell's office. Arnie, who has been driving the car himself and was possessed, is thrown through the windshield and is fatally impaled on a shard of glass. Yeah, um, I guess he was not wearing his (laughs) seatbelt. Wear your seatbelts, kids. Mm-hmm. Dennis and Lee attack Christine with the bulldozer, but she continually repairs herself and retaliates. Yeah, she starts playing on her radio, Rock and Roll is Here to Stay, which is very fitting. The back and forth continues until they repeatedly drive back and forth over Christine, damaging her so much that she is unable to immediately regenerate. The next day, Dennis, Lee, and Junkins watch as Christine's remains are compacted by a car crusher at the junkyard and dropped on the ground as a cube. Junkins praises the teens for defeating the demonic vehicle. At some point or another, he was clued in and is now a believer in the supernatural demon car. Which is, you know, honestly, you know, good for him. Dennis and Lee are not especially proud of themselves, though they will probably would have felt better if they were able to save Varney. As the camera zooms in slowly on the car's remains, a portion of the front grille twitches slightly before going still. Mm-hmm. There's also a fake out involving like a Richie Valens song coming up, but it's yeah. just a junkyard worker holding his ghetto blaster. Yeah, but Christine can put herself back together again. And, and that kind of goes into like one of the reasons why I like this is that I feel that it's very rare to have an iconic horror movie monster that's 
a lady or female coded that is explicitly evil with like no major redemptive qualities because you know you can say oh god what's the name of the main character in Candyman so when she becomes a, a creature at the end it's like oh she's now the monster but she's still on the side of good I guess same thing with like Deep Throat and Hellraiser you know the Cenobites aren't evil I mean they have their own twisted sense of morality and look at Chris She's neat. She's iconic, you know, of the Red Plymouth Fury didn't actually exist in real life, or at least not the way that it is in the movie. And, you know, yeah, she's kind of, like, obsessed with a man, but, you know, she's a car. She needs a driver. She's a passenger. And she's unstoppable, because I think that it would be really fun to have you know, a sequel to Christine. Was there any sort of sequel to Christine at all? Even like a shitty, you know, direct-to-DVD? Nothing that I could find. That's too bad, because it would be kind of fun to have Christine come back and find more victims. Like, she wants to be adored on a, a level that, you know, is impossible and evil, and she's hungry. I like that. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say that Christine is a horror movie female monster who isn't a vamp or um, a femme fatale, but yeah, she is. Yeah, it's just that she's a car. It's like, despite her being able to put herself back together again, you can't actually fuck her. Alright, Stephen King came up with the idea for the book while working on Creepshow with director George Romero. He named the titular villain after Romero's wife, Christine. Oh, okay, honestly, I would be so honored. (laughs) It's like... It's the Rachel. She's coming. <laughs> I, I haven't found an account of her what? remarking on it one way or the other. Maybe she thought it was a nice I gesture. I mean, honestly, if she was married to George Romero, she probably is like, aw, that's sweet. King chose a 1958 Plymouth Fury for Christine because he saw it as a forgotten car. He didn't want a vehicle that had a lot of storied history or any kind of legend uh, among gearheads. You know, just like a blank slate that he could project whatever he wanted on it. Between 1990 and 1999, Christine was one of the most heavily banned and challenged books in America. Why is that? Probably because of, like, weird Stephen King sex stuff and, you know, murder car. It ranked at 95 on the 100 list, so barely on there, but still respectable. Yeah, it's like, if you're on the banned books list, it's, like, good for you. (laughs) Yeah, fuck Sarah Palin. Alright, King was well-established as a best-selling writer whose work transferred to screen with reliable profitability uh, at this point. So the movie rights for Christine were quickly sold before the novel was even completed. But that honestly, that really surprises me. I mean, I do know that there are books out now that have the film rights snatched up super quickly, but it's always surprising to me, especially with you know a horror movie like Christine, because it's it's pretty pulpy. It makes me think of a graphic memoir that Brian Michael Bendis wrote about trying to get one of his early comics turned into a movie. And, yeah, the instant it was published, he started getting calls from people who wanted to buy the movie rights. And he was excited at first, but then, you know, a friend of his who had more experience in this clued him in. He's like, oh, they just want the movie rights in order to keep their rivals from getting it. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're interested in making the movie. They just want to stop other people from doing it. (laughs) On the other hand, Mm -hmm. it's Stephen King. The rules don't apply to him. No, they don't. 
producer, Richard Cobright, who had worked on the 1979 Salem's Lot miniseries. I haven't seen that. Have you? Uh, I haven't either. You see, I read Salem's Lot, and I think it is, like, a good material for, like, you know, a, a miniseries adaption. I'll check it out. It's just not one of my favorites by King. Yeah, King sent Cobright the manuscripts for Cujo and Christine personally. Mm-hmm. Cobritz felt that Cujo was too silly, but he liked Christine's subtext about the American obsession with cars. I don't know. I've watched, like, the ending of Cujo. It's disturbing, because they put a lot of goop on that goddamn dog. And frankly, Killer Dog is an actual thing. Sentient, self-aware murder car is, I think, an inherently silly premise. Uh, okay, I right. did not find Christine creepy, by the way. Oh, I, well, speaking of, like, murder cars in real life, do you want to know what's... You probably know this fact, because you live in Massachusetts, but the car that JFK was assassinated in was cleaned out and used for other presidents. Can you just imagine being like Jimmy Carter or like Ford sitting in the car being like, yeah, I mean, at least I have a roof, but did they get all the blood out of there? I think that's fucked up. I think they just should have trashed the car and gotten rid of it. All the way up to Jimmy Carter, damn. Yeah, I mean, I'm just guessing, but other president, maybe I think Nixon might have ridden around in it. But, you know, they're like, hey, we'll just clean it out and, you know, somebody else can use it. That is creepy, and that's a real fact right there. Cobritz immediately pursued Joan Carpenter to direct Christine. They had collaborated previously on the TV film Someone's Watching Me. Uh, is that one that he directed, uh, Carpenter? Uh, yeah, yes. But Carpenter was committed to an adaptation of King's novel Firestarter, and also a film treatment of Aaron von Lustbader's The Ninja. Both projects experienced significant production delays, however, so Carpenter opted to sign on to Christine. Firestarter was eventually made. It was Drew Barrymore's breakout role, I believe. Uh, I haven't seen it. Was it before or after E.T.? I haven't seen E.T. since I was a child, so... I think it was a couple of years after E.T., okay. so I guess E.T. was a breakout role, well, but I, I saw a Firestarter at a very impressionable age. Oh. <laughs> yeah, E.T. kind of creeped me out when I was five. Carpenter wanted Bill Phillips to write the screenplay, but Phillips thought that the premise for Christine was too goofy. I'm on the same page there. However, he started reading the novel as a favor to Carpenter and enthusiastically signed on before he even finished the book. Carpenter himself wasn't enthusiastic about Christine. He didn't find the novel especially frightening. However, Carpenter's reputation had taken a hit after his remake of The Thing flopped, and he really needed a job. I know The Thing is now considered a classic, but it took a while to get yeah, there. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think enough time has gone by that we can definitely do a Thing episode sometime soon. Stephen King movies were bankable, and he figured that directing a hit would help his career. Hence his involvement with Firestarter. Mm -hmm. Phillips altered a great deal of the original novel. Most of the death scenes were changed to make them more cinematic in some capacity. Will Darnell using the garage as a smuggling front was dropped. It's kind of unnecessary. The romance between Lee and Dennis was almost entirely removed. Uh, they're clearly obviously horny for each other. Yeah, you know, Lee just throws her arm around while they're in the murder bulldozer. Arnie getting arrested for smuggling cigarettes for Darnell was excised. Darnell getting arrested for tax evasion and then threatening to reveal Christine's condition to the cops is removed. 
and Roland LeBay selling Christine to Arnie directly before dying soon afterwards is also cut out. I imagine most of that stuff was removed just to make Christine more smooth in terms of like cinematic storytelling, just squeeze it more firmly into a three-act structure. Yeah. Have you read the book? Uh, I started the audiobook while putting the notes together for this, but I haven't finished it. I haven't read it. And I watched the movie first, but then as I found out, like, some of the changes, like, yeah, the content in the book versus the movie, I gotta feel like the movie is much better. Unlike Ryan, I do think the idea of a sentient-ish killer car is creepy. And I like the, the biggest difference between the book to the movie is that it's more explicit in the book that, like, Christine is possessed by the spirit of Roland LeBay versus, like, her own thing. Like, just out of nowhere. I guess it kind of goes to show you that sometimes ambiguity is, is better. Well, as Rachel intimated, the most significant alteration from book to movie is having Christine be evil from the moment that she was built. In the novel, Christine is an ordinary car that is gradually corrupted by Roland's obsession with her. Still infused with Roland's vengeful ghost, the car incrementally infects Arnie as well. Personally, I think that sounds more effective as a storytelling device, at least in terms of the thematic sense. The idea of the myth of the American car just overwhelming someone's mind, I think, has more impact when it is the ghost in the car. I, th I think it works from that front. I do understand why they would want to streamline it for the film, though. Yeah, I, I, do, I do disagree. I, I do think that it's more interesting and unsettling to have the great evil come from nowhere. Anyways, Phillips trimmed the subplot to save time, as I mentioned already, and telescope the story. But he was also afraid that the whole possession thing was too similar to an American werewolf in London, which had just come out. I don't think anyone would have made that comparison, yeah. personally. No. Phillips also felt that the story didn't have enough violence in it to justify an R rating and convinced that nobody would want to see a PG-rated horror movie uh, because the PG-13 didn't exist in 1983. He threw in a couple of F-bombs just to spice it up and make sure that the, 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 movie, the movie was seen as naughty. Yeah, I mean, they, they call him... Sorry. My cat. Um, they do call him Richie Cuntingham because if you say the C word in an American movie, it's like, ooh, immediately naughty. We never really know because the ratings board is arcane and they never give specific reasons for why they give something a, a rating. It's just after decades of experience, you can make educated guesses. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, the instant you say fuck, it's a PG-13. Mm-hmm. But don't you but, get um, one fuck per PG-13 movie? Sort of. You see, if someone stubs their toe and says fuck, that's a PG-13. However, if you have one fuck in your movie, and it's, hey, I'd like to fuck you, that's an R. Oh, yeah, as long as it's meant towards its actual, uh, the verb to fuck versus the, you know... Well, I think you can fuck someone up in terms of, like, physically beating them, mm -hmm. but if you're fucking someone up as in having a rough erotic encounter, that is an R. Yeah, it's sort of like how any scenes of, like, a woman getting gunned down on is, like, immediate R rating, even if it's, like, not graphic. 
Anyways, getting to the casting of this, uh, Brooke Shields and Scott Baio were suggested by Columbia for the parts of Lee and Arnie. Makes sense. But Carpenter wanted unknown actors and apparently got his way. Kevin Bacon auditioned for Arnie, but he backed out the star in Footloose. <laughs> that ended up being the right move for him. Yeah, honestly. Although, remember when we were watching like a few years ago, Friday the 13th, and we're like, that's Kevin Bacon. And we're like, no, it's not. And then it actually was Kevin Bacon. Baby Kevin Bacon. I guess he just kept asking for horror movies before he took off. Mm. John Cusack also auditioned for Arnie. I can see that. I can see that working out too, but you know he he did fine without it. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Cage auditioned for Buddy. That oh my god, been that would have been so fun. It's like Nick Cage. Nick Cage is getting killed by the car. I know Keith Gordon got the part as Arnie after auditioning in New York City. He kind of has the Nebishi look for it. it. He has the Nebishi look for it, and also when he turns into the evil greaser, it feels forced, which works for the character. Oh, I agree. Underpins the possession element of it. Now, the idea that you like so much of him progressively adding late 50s greaser clothing to give visual shorthand for Arnie being possessed by Christine was brought up by Gordon himself. Very good. That was good. his idea. Nice. It works. And Gordon also agrees with you in that he saw the car as a woman and he assigned feminine body parts to areas of Christine, especially the ones that he had to touch on camera. Yeah, he lovingly caresses her steering wheel. Are you saying the steering wheel is her clit? I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go around trying to, you know, do equivalencies. Although, like, in Titan, the movie where the woman fucks the car, like, she's naked, the car is bouncing up and down, the mime thrusting, but there's no visual car penis, although the car is a man, or at least masculinely coded, because she gets pregnant by the car. I don't think the car needs a dick in that area because I've known plenty of women who have orgasmed just by driving down a bumpy road. <laughs> yeah, but it's more about the fact that the car has posited its genetic caretic material inside Alexia producing a half-car, half-human bebe. Alright, moving on. We have John <laughs> Stockwell as Dennis Gilder. I liked him. Yeah, he's definitely supposed to be our audience POV character. Yeah. Like, he's the all-American jock, which makes him the bad guy in most 80s movies, but he's, he's the guy that egg. we're supposed to identify with he's, here. He's nice to his friend. Like, you know, sometimes he's kind of crass about, like, women, because he's like, you know, we gotta get you laid, man, you know. But he seems to, like, genuinely care for Arnie and wants Arnie to be okay. Oh, yeah, the, the bit where they're talking in Christine and Dennis is like, hey, mm -hmm. Lee actually cares about you. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is going a bit too far. At this point, Arnie's no longer a charity case that he's just sort of looking out after out of a sense of misguided pity. Like, this is his friend and he's worried about him and Gilder's mm -hmm. able to sell that. I'm always pro men showing vulnerability with other men in media because I feel like that's kind of rare or underappreciated. Especially since this movie was written and directed by boomers and takes place in 1979. Mm. Overt expressions of sincere feelings from one man to another will immediately have you being accused of being queer, which does happen in the film at least once. Yeah, at least it's... At least it's done as sort of like a haha, I'm just busting your balls versus like I'm going to commit a hate crime at you. 
Yeah, weird that Buddy never uses that language. I know, but maybe maybe it just would have been too much. <laughs> uh, then we have Alexandra Paul as Lee Cabot. She's uh, nice. She also was a part of that New York audition. She was completely unseasoned. This is her first major role. But Carpenter liked her vibe, and he went to bat for her. He lobbied for her hard. He, he thought that she would be the best choice for Lee. She's good. She had never read a King novel <laughs> or seen a King film, so just kind of had to force herself to get a crash course on it before things started. But, you know, I feel like that kind of works, though, because she is, like, immediately in over her head with Christine, and then it's like, there's a problem here, and I need to help fix it. And then she backs the fuck out, and that was a smart move, but then she gets sucked right back in. Mm -hmm. Then uh, we have Robert Crosby as Will Darnell. I, as you said, he's straight out, straight out of central casting. He's gruff guy. Like, I'm already mentally picturing him with a cartoon Brooklyn accent, even though he doesn't have one in the movie. Mm -hmm. I'm walking here. You know, and don't bust my balls, kid. You out on your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That wasn't. That was a terrible New York accent. I don't know what that was supposed to be. <laughs> All right. Uh, then we have Harry Dean Stanton as Detective Rudy Junkins. Always I, excited to see him in anything. Based on the synopsis, I was expecting more from this character, but no, he's just sort of there for like two scenes where he sort of threatens Arnie, and mm -hmm. Arnie snaps at him, and at the end he's like, "Yeah, kids, you took out that evil car that I'm now aware of." <laughs> Thanks for doing my job for me. Uh, Stanton had worked with Carpenter already on Escape from New York, so I guess he was just like, hey, you want an easy paycheck? It's like four scenes, you got a couple weeks. Sure. Yeah, I mean, he's always fun in anything. May yeah. he rest in peace. Yeah, I, I, I like Stanton. It's mm -hmm. good to see his face. And the last person I wrote down was Christine Belford as Regina Cunningham. She plays Arnie's mother, even though she's only 12 years older than him. Blank Gertrude, are we? There's, like, a, a good, you know, it's not really subtext because it is, like, part of the character arc. Like, I think even without Christine being an evil demon car... Arnie really just wants some, like, escape from his parents, especially his mom. He's an only child, as far as we know, and he really doesn't have any sort of real, true autonomy, you know? Oh, yeah, he wanted to be in the band, and they forced him to do chess club. It's, like, down to that level of micromanaging. Mm-hmm, yeah, so it's like you can kind of understand why Arnie gets so upset at the start. And I think his parents are genuinely too hard on him. I mean, I don't think it would have made a difference in the end whether or not they let him keep Christine in the house, but maybe it would have been better? I don't know. There is an interesting tension between Arnie and his parents that's barely commented on in the film because as soon as he starts pushing back, they start like trying to meet him halfway to the point where it's like when Christine is totaled and they don't know that it's Wolverine. They're just like, <laughs> we've decided to help you get a new card. And he's like, no, fuck that. Yeah, he's also like possessed by Christine, but. Yeah, I think it's part of his sort of teenage rebellion. Like, they micromanage him. They don't like his friends. You know, they're upset with any of his choices that he's made. And until Christine shows up, he hasn't really made any bad decisions. It's just his parents exercising that control over him. And maybe that's why he's so susceptible to Christine's charm. He's ripe for an escape. 
you can, and there probably has been a number of like an entire podcast just focusing on how Stephen King writes mommy. Yeah, it's like it's funny though because I read his on writing book this year, and Stephen King is a wife guy. Like he loves Tabby so much. She reads like all of his writing. If he describes her as being like the reader that he writes for her opinion holds an enormous sway over his writing and I'm like well why didn't she tell him that he needs to stop writing boobs so much maybe she likes tits I mean you she know, fished the shining out of the trash she, she has some idea of what to do right <laughs> yeah I know she's a good egg like just the whole chapter where he talks about her spending two hours setting up a desk for him after he was out of the hospital for being hit by a car so that he could write and I'm like that's true love right there but you just don't need to have a scene in the book in the long walk where our male teenage hero thinks about how saggy his mom's tits are yeah agreed <laughs> i mean i haven't gotten to the point in the audiobook where the weird stephen king sex thing has, has happened yet it has to happen at some point yeah in the in the movie there isn't really that much there's mm-hmm. the part where they're you know they're going at it in the in the drive-through and you know his hand slips a hair blouse and she's just rubbing up down in his business there but then <laughs> but then christine starts thinking at her and she's like no no i can't fuck you in this car yeah well lee can't get fucked in 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 christine because she's evil evil car lady i thought they were just gonna stop at some hand stuff but then again i'm not a big car sex guy myself there's just you too how do you maneuver yeah i have too much legs Yeah, I, and also they're in a public place, and I mean, I know this sex offender registry doesn't exist because it's the 70s, but I wouldn't want, you know, Officer, you know, John Q. Public being like, hey guys, cut that out, stop fucking in a public place inside your car. The drive throughs are for fucking. I guess. Anyways, Christine was shot in Los Angeles with Darnell's garage being shot in Santa Clarita. A number of Pasadena neighborhoods that were filmed for Halloween also show up in Christine. Aw, it's that John Carpenter touch. Filming began in April of 1983, less than a week after the novel was published. That is freaking fast. The rules don't apply to Stephen King. That's true. The driving stunts were done by Terry Leonard, who wore a firefighter's suit and a breathing apparatus for the parts where Christine was set ablaze. Wow, that's badass. Carpenter was initially reluctant to film the scene where Christine heals herself like Wolverine, but at the last moment where he could get away with it, he asked the special effects team to come up with something. It's really good. Like, say what you want about this movie, the special effects do hold up. Like, Christine putting herself back together, it's cool. It looks better and neater than any sort of CGI. It's, you know, the Henson's Law, but, you know, practical effects age like wine, CGI like milk. Christine's regeneration was accomplished by installing hydraulic pumps into various 58 Plymouths. Large swaths of the bodywork in these Plymouths were replaced with a flexible rubberized plastic that looked like metal on camera if lit in a very specific way. The pumps were connected to cables that sucked the paneling inwards. This effect was then reversed in editing, making Christine look like it was repairing itself. 
During shooting, Alexandra Paul pranked Carpenter by having her identical twin sister Carolyn fill in for her one day. <laughs> it was during one the, during the bulldozer scene. Nice. In the midst of shooting, Alexandra then approached Carpenter from the back and asked why she had been fired. Oh, I, w- I would have been kind of scared. Carpenter was amused by this and insisted on keeping Carolyn's scenes in the film. Nice. But she wasn't credited due to SAG regulations. It's sort of like how Linda Hamilton's twin sister filled in for some of the scenes on Terminator 2. 15% of Christine's budget went to cars alone. I mean, that makes sense. Carpenter placed ads throughout Southern California for 58 Plymouth Furies and was able to get about 24 of them in various states of disrepair. That's actually pretty good. That's a large number of cars. 17 functioning vehicles were created for the film from these junked out cars, with Plymouth Belvedere's and Savoy's filling out the remainder of the Christine's. Only 5,303 Plymouth Furies were manufactured, so they were hard to find and very pricey, hence 15% of the budget. I Uh, mean, Christine is the titular character. You kind of need to have her as a car. They changed a lot of other stuff, but they made sure that it was still a 58 Fury. Yeah. All but two of these cars were destroyed during filming, with surviving bits sold for scrap to cover production costs. Ooh... A surviving Christine, however, was found in a junkyard and restored in 2004. It was auctioned off to a private collector for $167,000. Man, I'm not a car person by any means, but I would drive a Christine around. That'd be fucking awesome. Nobody doubts this. Yeah. (laughs) In addition to the hydraulic pumps on the self-repairing Christines, the murder Christines had airplane landing lights installed inside them. Yeah, like, I think that's such a nice, chilling touch because so much of, like, a lot of horror is just in the shadow, concealed, but no. Christine wants you to see. She wants you to see when she comes to kill you. Yeah, Christine isn't just Wolverine. She's also Moon Knight. (laughs) She wants you to know she's coming. Yep. Like many Carpenter films, the score for this was composed by Carpenter and his frequent writing partner, Alan Howarth. It sounds good. It's very, like, John Carpenter monster movie, you know? Especially the scenes where Christine is just strolling down the street, ready for murder. Horror movie aficionados seem to have mixed feelings about the Carpenter score. It was a bit rushed, and it goes back to a lot of the tricks that Carpenter had used in Escape from New York and The Fog. The arpeggios in Christine are barely different from the Halloween theme. Yeah, that's probably why it immediately read as, this is a horror movie soundtrack. Particularly Carpenter one. (laughs) The more notable aspect of the film's music was probably its numerous needle drops. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the most part, when we're in Christine, the radio tunes to late 50s rock and roll classics by Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Larry Williams, Johnny Ace, Richie Valens, so on and so forth. It's how she talks. And, you know, we we have the comparison to Bumblebee, but Christine doesn't, like, talk in, like, the traditional way where she uses, like, a pithy sound bite to say a sentence. It's like the song is the vibe. It's what she wants you to know. And I think it also kind of keeps her a little bit more creature-like because she's a female car, but she's not a woman. No, I like the crystal gems. <laughs> 
Diegetic songs used outside of the interior of Christine included those by ABBA, Bonnie Raitt, and the Rolling Stones, you know, late 70s stuff. Mm -hmm. The most notable needle drop was probably the beginning and the end of the film where they used George Thorogood and the Destroyer's Bad to the Bone. Everybody got that? <laughs> I fucking hate that song. <sighs> I, I don't know. I mean, it, on paper, there shouldn't be anything about it that bothers me, but it just... It's just too on the nose. It feels like really synthetic, fake, white boy blues to me. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there are other white boys blues acts that I like. I like Blue Cheer, I like Cream, but Thurgood and the Destroyers, just, it feels like plastic John Lee Hooker. Like, why don't I just listen to John Lee Hooker? <laughs> Thurgood and Phillips got brief cameos in the film, but neither of them were especially good actors and the scene was cut. Aw, that's too bad. Carpenter, who had a superstition about it at this point, didn't attend the premiere of the film. He's like, every time I do, something bad happens. So, no. Aw, man. But he deserves to, you know, all the accolades. Christine made $21 million off its $10 million budget. That's pretty good. Yeah, making a modest profit after you factor in marketing and the like. However, Christine made most of its real money off basic cable broadcasts and home video rentals. Mm -hmm. Which is probably what they had in mind when they greenlit the thing in the first place. Reviews were largely middling, which is pretty good for a horror movie. I was expecting them to be execrable. General praise was given for the performances, and a lot of critics liked the fun gestures towards 1950s pop culture. The film was criticized for a lethargic pace, which I could get behind. I don't think that this runs as tightly as uh, most of the stuff that Carpenter did before since. Yeah, I kind of noticed it more my second time watching through that it is pretty slowly paced. It takes a while for Christine to really become a menace. Although when she is on screen killing people, it's awesome, but you do have to wait a while to get there. It's not like during that part that they're fleshing out the characters all that much. Most of them are playing very broad archetypes, and the only reason they feel like people is because the actors are a lot better than the lines that they're reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Dennis could especially could have felt very flat, but John Stockwell, right? That's his name? John Stockwell's yeah. charm adds to it a great deal. There was also some criticism for the film's premise and themes. A lot of people said that this just felt like a tired retread of prior Stephen King tropes. I mean, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I, I think that, you know, he had, like, what if a teenage girl was evil? What if we did vampires in our town? And, like, where does Christine fall? And pretty early on in his backlist. There are a lot of things that were done better in Carrie that are also in Christine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it kind of comes down to this, is that I find Carrie to be a sympathetic character. Stephen King does not. Yeah, that's messed up, but that's another episode. Yeah, that's another episode. Like, in his on-writing book, he calls her a female version of Harrison Klebold. And I'm like, no! Yeah, and I do think that I like Christine in the regard that she's going to come back to wreak more havoc. Carrie's just dead. I'd rather see, you know, the maligned lady monster, especially a victim of abuse like Carrie, to rise again. To have more chaos. Like, let ladies be bad. Well, there was a Carrie sequel, but once again, that's another episode. Mm-hmm. 
Christine is directly homaged and or parodied in episodes of Futurama. Oh my god, yes. Star Trek Voyager and Supernatural. Of course it is. I mean, there is like a car that is basically... the Okay, so in Supernatural, spoiler alert for people who don't give a shit about Supernatural, because I sure fucking don't, the car, the Impala, when Dean and Sam are dead and in heaven, sews the car. The car is also in heaven with them. The gay angel is not. And that is the extent of my supernatural knowledge. Furthermore, Bloomhouse announced a remake in 2021. It is coming out possibly next year or the one following. I hope it's good. I really do. I think that there's more to be done with it besides just like, okay, it's a symbol of masculinity. What if the person who ends up driving Christine is, you know, a girl, you know, somebody who does not conform to, you know, the gender binary. If Christine represents, like, masculinity in general, or at least part of it, the desire for, like, the car independent. It would be really interesting to see what happens if that is subverted or changed in a way versus it just being a shot for shot remake of the original. There is a very obvious thematic bit about how Arnie is defining his masculinity by possessing this female coded object. Yeah, and even then, he doesn't really possess her. She owns him. She wrecks his life because she's a monster. Hmm. That brings us to themes. Ooh, yay, themes. First thing I wrote down was the car as a status symbol, which, you know, that's an obvious thing for us yeah. to touch upon. This is like B-plus book report shit. <laughs> we'll, we'll go through it fast, then. Cars are complex machines that require regular attention and maintenance. They're likely the most expensive thing that an ordinary American owns, you know, since most of us are barred from home ownership at yeah, this point. Yeah, I think, but besides my car, the most expensive thing that I own is my laptop, and after that, it's the my entire collection of Full Metal Alchemist manga. So yeah, if you're gonna hit Rachel's place, you know where to start. <laughs> Yeah, but that's the difference between a car that's worth thousands upon thousands of dollars versus $900 to $2,200 worth of books. Yeah, and it's easier to cart off Full Metal Alchemist, I imagine. Yeah, maybe your arms are long enough. But, like, to kind of go on a little tangent, like, when I was buying my car, because it was originally a lease, the car salesman was like, so, Rachel, um, you know, how long are you planning on owning this car? Three years? Four years? And... I don't, I don't like, Ryan, I don't fucking like owning a car. I wouldn't if I didn't have to, to participate in society. And I, I looked at the car salesman, and I was like, until it's no longer safe to drive. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I ride my guys until they drop. Mm-hmm. Anyways, because of all of this, owning a nice car is a sign of affluence. And since cars are loud and powerful, they can be signs of toughness and virility. And it's a cliche for a middle-aged man with sexual performance issues to buy a fancy car to compensate for his bruised ego. I mean, but it's why every time you see a giant truck going by, you're like, compensating for something, honk, honk, honk. Yeah, sometimes things become cliche for truthful reasons. 
and it's reflected in this film. Arnie buys the car because he's unpopular and awkward. widely disliked and awkward and disrespected. And he's under the impression that fixing up this car will give him something to anchor a personality to. You know, something that will make him seem cool. It's not subtle. Yeah, I mean, which it does, but, you know, it goes back to the whole thing that, like, Christine is on ordinary car. And, like, speaking of cars as a status symbol, so one summer I worked at the bougiest, fanciest country club as a waitress, and I drove my dad's car to work. For the first two months, I got away with parking in the club member's lot because my dad's car was a Cadillac. They thought it belonged to somebody who went there and not worked there. And by the time they realized it was me, you know, it, two months had gone by. And they are like, yeah, Rachel, can you just park it down in the employee lot? Which is, like, way down on the other end of the club. <laughs> yeah, movies are not the only factor in how car culture got this way. There's a, a lot of stuff at work. You know, car companies buying up public transit systems in major cities in the mid-20th century and dismantling them, therefore forcing people on the road. Roger Rabbit's real. Yup. I was like, Roger Rabbit. <laughs> but movies are a big part of how car culture germinated and grew in the United States and how vehicles became synonymous with being assigned to male power. Being really good at cars is being really good at being manly. Mm-hmm. And that's because cars are extremely cinematic, even when they aren't being used in tense, death-defying chase scenes. I'm just thinking of the They scene just look cool from, on camera. I'm just thinking of the scene from Furious 7 where they drive the car through the Burj Khalifa, and it's just, like, absolutely ridiculous, but damn if it isn't cool. <laughs> yeah, that leads me to opine on how uh, more than a few think pieces have openly lamented that the advent of self-driving cars in the not-so-distant future will take all of the sexiness out of driving, and things like Bullet and Fast and the Furious will seem like bizarre historical curios to later generations. You know what? Let's let the cars die. I will not grieve it. Like I said, my car is a stupid necessity that I resent owning. Yeah, if we didn't live in towns where, like, every block was a cul-de-sac, we might be able to even walk to places. I mean, you know, I, I don't... I really don't drive my car that much to the point that I was contemplating getting rid of it, but it also got down to, well, what if I need to go to the grocery store? What if I need to take my cat to the vet? I can't rely on public transportation for that, so I keep the damn thing. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to knock someone for having a silly hobby since, you know, I make webcomics and this podcast and both of those are pretty silly, but yeah, high-speed rail, come on. Yeah, give me that high-speed rail. The other thematic bit I wrote down was nostalgia and the sins of the past coupled with generational trauma. It's just kind of, I mean, I know the movie game is like set in the 70s, but it did throw me for a loop when Arnie is like, she's 21 years old, that makes her an antique. It's a car that came out in the 50s, and I was like, no way, like, Christine is my mom's age. Like, my mom is, you know, not 21 anymore. More, but like still it, you know she's even if Christine does get remade and you know it takes place now she really is an antique you know it's like the equivalent now of somebody having a car that was made in like the late 90s early 2000s and those cars are not 
nostalgicize the way that, you know, a 1950s Plymouth Fury would be. Yeah, I know. Are they going to use a 58 Fury in the Bloomhouse remake? I mean, I, I would I'm hope curious about so. That. Like, this is my 2000 Humba. <laughs> She's evil. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work the same way. You need that sort of, like, the 50s are endlessly nostalgicized for bad reasons, in my opinion. You know, I would like, it's a simpler time. It's like, we still have milkshakes, poodle skirts, and racism. Relax. Yeah, women knew their place, and certain people weren't allowed on golf courses. Pepperidge Farm remembers. Yeah, I know, right? So, I, I do think the nostalgia of Christine, you know, I, I will say that, yeah, you know, I, within my own lifetime, the difference between, you know, 2002 and 2022 feels very big. But I also feel like the difference between 1957 to 1978 feels so much bigger. I mean, I wasn't alive during any of that. But yeah, Yeah, true. I understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. And we have talked about the dangers of the nostalgic honeypot on previous episodes of this podcast mm -hmm. because we hop around time periods a lot, and that's just going to come up. But Christine was written and directed by Boomers, as I already said, and Stephen King and John Carpenter clearly think that shit from the late 1950s is cool. Well, you know, also, Stephen King was born in the late 40s, so he was a child in the 50s. I don't think I'm going to grow up with the same sort of weird nostalgia for, like, the 1990s, and I don't think you're, you barely remember the 80s. I have very vague memories of the Berlin Wall coming down, but yeah, my childhood was the 90s. Yeah, I mean, I remember my first world event was Princess Diana dying, and I was four, almost five. We've touched upon this before, but, you know, remembering the past should not be done at the expense of living in the moment or planning for the future. Uh, romanticizing an idyllic past that never actually existed is the road to a lot of awful things. Yeah, I can just think of all of, like, the, you know, crappy groups of self-important white men being upset about the state of the world all daydreaming for a version of the 1950s that never existed. When was America great? Uh, when was it? Name the specific year. Mm, I can't think of any, re I can't, I honestly can't, because I'm like, oh, well, X year, but then slavery, you know, existed, then you've got, you know, all the other social issues and, and stuff. Well, for reactionaries, it tends to be like... Mid-century America. Yes, but also vaguely 40-ish years ago. The 80s! Yeah, at the moment, the idyllic past that never really existed was the Reagan administration. Oh my god, I see people with, like, freaking signs just on their cars that say, I miss Reagan, and I'm like, fuck you! And I mean, now that John Hinckley is out of prison, right? And everyone is, he has a Twitter account, and he's like, he's gone full leftist, and everyone's like, why didn't you aim better and kill Reagan? I mean, I don't really want to turn this into, like, is John Hinckley an Americana folk hero? Um, that's a whole other episode. But if we are starting to look at the, if the nostalgia thing is 40 years into the past and the 80s are in the heyday and, you know, we still have people talking about illnesses in the same sort of moral panic as AIDS, it's like you can't nostalgicize a time period without ignoring all of the other social issues that were happening in the background. It's why I can't 
stand it. Like, I follow a lot of, like, you know, aesthetic blogs for, like, 60s stuff because I like the fashion. I research the time period for my own writing. But I always hate it when everyone's just like, well, I, I wish that I was born in that time. And I'm like, shut up, Lana Del Rey. You don't. You fucking don't. Shut up. I mean, I like bisexual lighting and exactly. synth pop, but I also don't like callously letting millions of people die of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Fuck Ronald Reagan. May he rot in peace. Also, I, I like workers being able to collectively bargain against their employers. Pro-union. Also, the war on drugs sucked. It yeah, still sucks. Too. Fuck yes. it all. Yeah, you know, we're already we're already black right, about okay, Reagan okay, too much. Okay, so we'll just say, believe it, is that Ryan and I are upset millennial leftists. Let's just leave it at that. All right, continuing on. Beta male pinko cuck. All yes. right, uh, this brings me back to what was stated in the novel and what I think makes the novel more effective that Rachel has already disagreed with. Roland's cruelty being transferred to Arnie much in the same way that abusive people often hail from abusive families. I think that's a pretty direct metaphor that is also frequently touched upon in prior and then later King novels. Oh, The Shining versus Doctor Sleep? Yeah. Uh, Arnie's character arc centers upon whether he has it in him to ensure that the cycle of abuse stops with him. And uh, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just puts on his Rebel Without a Cause red jacket and he is just completely consumed by that sex car. In a maybe in Christine 2, reboot, sequel, remake, whatever the heck it is, maybe that is something that it can grapple with. I should hope. Maybe it's a legacy sequel where uh, new characters, but it takes place in the same continuity as the prior film. I'm I, that is what I personally hope for. You know, the idea that Christine is she can qualify for AARP now. She's rolling around looking for a new victim to devote him, her, themselves to her. Or maybe she teaches a Tesla to start running over children. Oh I mean, it's god. already there. Oh my god, that would be so funny. But then wouldn't kind of turn into a maximum overdrive instead. <laughs> You're not talking me out of this. Okay, no, all right, all right, I like the idea of Christine corrupting Teslas and self-driving cars. They're eight-tenths of the way there already. She just needs to give them a little push. <laughs> oh my god, I literally was like reading some some like out of nowhere Reddit post. I'm like, we're looking for volunteers. Like, I want a ch- I want an actual child to stand in front of my Tesla. It's for science, you see. <sighs> okay, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there uh, anything you'd like to talk mm, about, Christine? Nope. Um, I just hope the sequel is good, and we need more non-vampire or femme fatale lady monsters in media but them being a lady is still important so like christine or the velociraptor or any of the kaijus you know mothra if mothra was evil she would also be a pretty good role model but then again i am also an absolute noob when it comes to monster movies so i'll just let ryan correct me mothra does have an evil goth counterpart named batra I love that. Okay, Batro. Yes. Okay. Lady Monsters. Yeah. All right, and on that note, thanks for listening. Join us next time.